Welcome to Mnemonic, a podcast about memory. My name is Ryan Trussell. I'm a writer and a father. And each week I'll tell you a story about my life, threading connections between the past and the present moment, finding resonances that often even surprise me. Just a quick note. Uh, These are autobiographical stories that involve people other than myself. I've done my best to protect the identities of those I could without sacrificing clarity in the stories. And in all cases, I've done my level best to make sure the people who aren't me come out looking the best they can. So if you see yourself in any of these stories, please keep that in mind, and I hope that you understand. All right, thank you very much. Episode 12, St. James Cemetery. The cop shined his flashlight on me as I stepped out of the darkness of St. James Cemetery. The second one looked up from his search of the van and trained his flashlight on me as well. What did I look like then, emerging from the shadows, late on a Saturday night in October, in an empty cemetery? I'd only recently turned 17 and had spent the last year growing my hair long enough to put in a ponytail, trying to compete with a boy I would never meet for the affections of a girl who he wasn't interested in and who I shouldn't have been either. Although it was already October and the autumn air was chill, I was wearing shorts and sandals and the oversized gray sweatshirt I'd been attempting to grow into since my dad had let me borrow it from him six years earlier. I achieved my first pitiful and scraggly beard off that summer, but now routinely allowed about two weeks worth of scruff to grow in between each shave. If a policeman shone his flashlight in my face tonight, as a grown man I would probably appear nervous and frightened, ready to be polite and compliant. But there was no way that as I strutted out to the small lit entrance to the cemetery as a 17-year-old boy, that I didn't look smug and cocksure. It was the only way I knew how to look. After only a few questions, the police officer asked me to put my hands on the hood of his cruiser. As he pat me down, I looked out into the darkness of the St. James Cemetery, at the trees that were little more than a black Potemkin village against the dark purple October sky. Behind them was a path that led to my childhood home, a path I had walked dozens of times growing up. I could hear the staticky clatter of the police radio, and I thought about the path I had walked that past year, and about the handcuffs on each of the officers' hips as they milled about me and the abandoned van beneath the entrance light, and about how I probably had all of this coming. It had been exactly a year earlier that I had last walked to the cemetery. I had brought a girl with me, not the girl that I perhaps wished to be walking with, but I had some subterfuge to engage in. Stephanie had handed me an envelope with flower petals she claimed had been purloined from a grave across the street from our high school. She was stunningly beautiful and even more stunningly mysterious, and I was yet 16, and this was the most miraculous thing that had happened to me, her approach, her interest, and we spent that spring and summer testing out the mystery of the other. We wrote each other's letters, talked poetry and music, walked through the nights of the late summer. We went on one date. I dropped all my summer savings on an expensive dinner in the North End. 
But it was these walks, often from the high school down the hill, over the Setucket River, and past the old mill, that was where our romance gestated. It was these nights and all the almosts, almost touching, almost kissing, almost saying, that felt the most real, that felt like a bloom pushing through my ribcage, threatening to flower at any moment. But for the whole summer and into the beginning of that school year, it remained a sweet, unspoken romance that lingered about us like the heat of day lingers about the dusk. One night in late September, it got a bit too real. Our talk began to wind up and spin out of control. We might start confessing how we felt, and we each panicked. First her, and a teary and nervous exit. Then me in the Protestant tradition of refusal and denial. I had wanted to tell Stephanie how I felt about her, but instead I found the next girl I could and told her that instead. Which is how I ended up inviting Shannon on a walk down the trail by my home that led to the St. James Cemetery. I might have kissed any girl that would have let me then, and Shannon was prettier than most, but I needed to kiss a girl that night of all nights so Stephanie wouldn't think that I had wanted to kiss her. In reading the charges against me, let stupidity be the first count. I'm not going to taint my confession by proffering false witness. It would be easy to say I only dated Shannon as part of this elaborate ruse, but I cannot say that I did not fall madly in love with her over the course of the six months we were together, or that our relationship was tumultuous only because of how ill-suited we were for each other, not because of how fiery our passions were. Much of it was teenage hormonal soup, but a lot of it was her family. I spent most weekdays and evenings at her house, eating dinner with her parents and sister. Her father in particular took, a, took an interest in me. The father of daughters belatedly granted a son. Her mother had a soft and quiet way of moving through life. I was used to more noise, more commotion. I was seeking out a home life different than my own and found it at Shannon's house, even if much of the time I spent with Shannon was spent quarreling. Jealousy was at the root of it. Shannon hated Stephanie, who personified many of Shannon's insecurities, even before factoring in our history. They shared a pre-calculus class together, and Shannon would write me notes describing all the infuriating things Stephanie did. She camouflaged her screeds by giving Stephanie the alias Jane, in case perhaps any of these letters found their way to other eyes. Of the dozens of letters from Shannon I have held on to over these past 20 years, Many of them make at least one reference to Jane. And this was beside the fact that Jane had written me a note of her own, confirming what I had suspected that late summer, that early fall, that her feelings for me had been much the same as my feelings for her. She acknowledged that I had someone else now. There were no aliases, but neither did she mention any names, and that she meant no trouble. That I did not take the messages letter as a call to action is in part due to my growing affection for Shannon, and maybe another small part, my sense of lo that loyalty was an important trait. But the largest reason I did nothing after Jane's letter was simply that it involved making a choice, taking a risk, potentially hurting someone. So I did nothing, allowed inertia to have its way. Let the second charge in the indictment be known as cowardice.
Shannon also had her own dalliances to grapple with. Many afternoons I spent at her house. I was watching television with her sister or her father as she received calls from a juvenile detention facility. The rationale was the person calling only had a small window in which he was allowed to make phone calls. And if that happened to be when I was there, there was nothing that could be done. Many of my friends couldn't understand why I had chosen Shannon over Stephanie, not understanding I had refused to make a choice at all. So I had no one I felt I could confide in about my doubts. Why was she talking to this boy so much? And her family was as much of a closed circuit as I had ever seen. It was the four of them, and they clung together tightly. And even though I was welcome in the circle, I was in no position to question her actions in front of any of them. So instead, I watched MASH reruns and silently stewed. Shannon was the only girl I ever dated who believed in the idea of couples taking breaks. She would give our relationship week-long busman's holidays where we would spend most of it separate but making long and teary late-night phone calls each night until the next Sunday when we would reconcile. It was during one of these breaks that Stephanie and I kissed twice in the same day. First, I kissed her awkwardly as we crossed the trolley tracks in the city, lost on our way to the aquarium. The second time she kissed me in her car, pulling down a side street on our way back home. Perhaps we had not quite resolved all our feelings, even though she was nominally involved with another boy, who I knew nothing about except he had a ponytail, one that I was doing my damnedest to cultivate for myself. Neither of us, Stephanie and I, were in a position to be kissing the other. It may have seemed like my true feeling manifesting my, themselves, or a small act of revenge for what I suspected was the infidelity in Shannon's heart. But the truth is I was 16, and I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I was like an ant cut in half, still moving by memory, without purpose or drive. If there were a thousand cuts in the death of our relationship, this was neither the first nor the last. It might have been number 700, but it would have just been something else. This is not to absolve myself. I still did the bloodletting. I imagine the few friends I had left at this point must have been troubled by this clearly unhealthy relationship I was in. But even if they said anything or offered any counsel, I was lost in the flotsam of anger and desire, of vengeance and lust. I had Stockholm Syndrome, and I had given it to myself. I was both captor and captive. With all due respect to Shannon and the time we spent together, she could have been anyone. I was going to handcuff myself to a radiator somewhere. Any place would do. Let the third charge be false imprisonment and self-endangerment. During this time, I wrote an epic poem modeled on the wasteland with none of the wit or wisdom entitled Other People's Beds. Twenty pages of verse later, I reached what I thought was a profound conclusion. The final lines reading, I am the dreamer of dreams. There is no shame in dreaming them from others' beds. It was certainly on my mind. Shannon gave us another break that spring, and in that week I was given another letter by a different girl. There was no guile to it. She liked my laugh. She liked my hair. She liked me. After spending so much time and emotion on a girl who didn't seem to like herself or me very much, the idea of investing in a girl who needed an Oxford comma to name all the things she liked was appealing. I finally made a choice, and it was an easy one. 
This girl and I spent a charming and sweet summer together, and then she left me for college, went on to have a charming and sweet life. I have nothing but warm thoughts about her and the way she let me rescue myself. However, Shannon reemerged before summer's end, as if perhaps our week-long break had just run four months over, and I spent the waning months of that August back in that house with her family, imagining that perhaps it was where I had belonged all along. But it only took one more jealous fight, this time about her younger sister, for me to part ways. Eventually, I figured another beautiful girl would hand me a letter. But it didn't happen. I kept waiting for this new girl to announce herself, but none was forthcoming. I grew deeply bitter, spending my time in school composing another epic poem entitled, Where is Melanie Post? A reference to another girl who had graduated the spring before with Shannon and Stephanie. I had never spoken to or thought about this girl before, had no particular interest in her, but I can only imagine I thought the meaning of the title would be clear. Where are the girls who should love me? I asked one girl out on a date, a girl from another town who I saw in a local play and vaguely recognized from a summer camp years earlier. Perhaps she thought my boldness and bravura put on a farcical ruse. She couldn't have been more wrong. We went out once to see Marlon Brando as Dr. Moreau creating mutant hybrids on his eponymous island, then walked around the local playground. But it seemed like a lot of work, like her love and adulation was nothing certain like it was something I would have to earn, and I lost interest. James Joyce's story, Araby, ends with its young narrator alone in the local bazaar after failing to buy a gift there for the young girl who lives across the street and who has stirred his deepest passions. He is angry and claims to be a creature, quote, driven and derided by vanity. When I teach this to my students, I keep my eyes out for a look of recognition. But they are usually only 14 or 15, and the ending confuses them. It certainly reminds me of someone I used to know, someone I used to be. So that was who I was when I found myself once again in the St. James Cemetery. Shannon had come home from the weekend from college, and learning it was exactly a year to the day of our first date, came to my house and picked me up. I got in her parents' van, if not exactly against my will, then it would be fair to say it was under duress. Some time was spent with her angrily driving around looking for cigarettes for some reason. Each house we stopped at would end in frustration for her, and each house I thought about trying to get that person alone so I could whisper, Help! Don't let her take me. I had made a mistake getting in the car with her, and now I was certain of it. I saw some kids lurking in the shadows. We drove the into the firefly of a lit joint dangling before their faces. And all the time I had spent they there, scurried I had off only the ever woods. come in through the clearing in the back it seemed like a good at idea. the end of the trail. Shannon walked with she her arms the van into the one street light in the cemetery and looked over Perhaps at me this with moment a look was of not what she had hoped in her it eyes. Would it might have been I the one thing in common we shared on that October around. night, the soggy weight of deluded expectations. At some point, a police car pulled into the cemetery, shining its light out into the darkened woods, looking for those stoners, I imagined. A few minutes later, a second cruiser rolled through, then a third. They began shining their lights into Shannon's van, began getting out of their cars. One opened the sliding door and began searching inside. That is what prompted me to step out of the shadows. I'd implored Shannon to do it. It was her car, but she refused. What seems to be the problem, officers, I asked. 
It was something I'd heard people say on television. I don't think I intended to have a smug tone, but neither do I think I was always quite aware of how smug my tone usually was. The cops did not look happy to see me. After I got the whole story, I understood. Finding the van, they called it in and learned that Shannon's parents had reported a missing after she had taken off in it after an argument the night before. Finding it abandoned in a cemetery in a different town, finding a long-haired, unshaven young man shambling out of the woods, a self-satisfied look on his face. Well, who wouldn't assume the worst? After it had all been cleared up, after Shannon emerged from the woods and took ownership of the vehicle and of her actions in disappearing, one of the older cops, maybe the one who perhaps handled me a bit rougher than he should have when putting me up against the car hood, apologized, explaining that he had a daughter Shannon's age. I didn't blame him. She was someone's daughter, and while I wasn't the type of criminal he thought I was, I was a criminal all the same. There were six other deadly sins, and as a creature, I had been driven and derided by some of them. I insisted on walking home, and as Shannon followed beside me in her parents' van on the shoulder, hazards on, traveling five miles per hour, she pleaded with me to get back in the car, but I refused. And when she followed me inside my father's house, down into the basement room where as a teenager I had made my bed, I ignored her pleas and feigned sleep until she let herself out. It was perhaps crueler than she deserved, but I was angry at her, at the female sex as a whole for what they'd reduced me to. That night I pledged myself to a vow of chastity, and when I fell in love again, I would endeavor for it to be in the same spirit I had when I was a young boy, pining after girls up the street who I had no desires for except for the idyllic knowledge of their existence. They would be Beatrice to my Dante, symbols of innocence and reverent love. It was as if my bodily desire was the root of all my troubles, and by purging myself of it, I would be free. But as I leaned against the hood of a police car in St. James Cemetery, with woods merely far away darkness, and only the nearest tombstones illuminated by the flashing lights of the cruisers. Perhaps just for a moment, I was the unnamed boy in Joyce's Araby, my eyes burning with anguish and anger. Perhaps for just a moment, I allowed the possibility that there were sins worse than lust, fates worse than death. Thanks as always to Joel McKenna, as well as Amy Reichenbach and Daryl Morey. Episodes of Mnemonic can be found in mnemonicpodcast.tumblr.com, mnemonicpodcast.soundcloud.com, and also in the iTunes store. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Have a great night. Mm-hmm.